So what is the distinguishing mark of a Christian? How do you know when you see a Christian? Well, pastor, that's simple. Somebody that goes to church, that's a Christian. No. Well, somebody that's nice to people and they smile a lot and they're courteous. They're, they're friendly. They, they, they just look like they have a difference about them. That, that's how you know. They're friendly. No. Well, those that are politically conservative, I, I mean, that, that's obviously, the political conservatives are Christians. No. Well, those people that support Chick-fil-A, they're obviously, they're obviously believers. Pastor, the mark of a Christian is somebody that they've, they've, they've walked an aisle, they've gone up to the pastor, they've, they've joined the church, they've affiliated with this congregation, they've, they've been baptized. That's the mark of a Christian. No. What is the distinguishing mark? Well, Jesus said, uh, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, that's, that's a mark. But what has been the distinguishing mark from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament that we are a people of God? It's one thing. It's repentance. God's people repent God has always had an affinity for those people who are quick to repent but it's the one action that we are so hesitant to do all throughout the Bible Old Testament New Testament it's not necessarily the person who never fails that's blessed it's the person that fails but repents. What made David a man after God's own heart? It wasn't that he didn't fail. He failed miserably. What made him a man after God's own heart? He repented. That's the mark. Repentance. Back in 1989, whenever the Iron Curtain fell, believers in Eastern Europe, uh, they were no longer worshiping underground. And, and what they call themselves, they didn't call themselves Christians or believers. They call themselves repenters. So if you were a repenter, you were a follower of Christ. They would have where if you wanted to be saved, you walked forward to the church and you, you repented. And it was evidence you were saved. In fact, they, they called it a public confession of repentance. We called it a, a public confession of faith. They called it a public confession of repentance. Because God's people have always been known by repentance. The last several Sundays I've been going through books of the Bible that I've not preached from in 18 years as your pastor. There are 12 of them. So I'm, I'm preaching from one of each of those books each Sunday. And so far we've looked at Song of Solomon and we've looked at Lamentations and 2 John and 3 John and Jude and, 
and we've looked at Ezra. And this morning, we're going to look at an Old Testament prophet. Maybe you've not read him much. His, his book's only three chapters long. But it's the prophet Joel. Now, Hebrews call him Yoel. We call him in Texas. That's Joel. And so it's the Old Testament prophet Joel. And he told God's people in his prophecy the primary action God wants from his people is repentance. Read with me verse 12 of chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet at Zion, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach. A byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? We don't know much about Joel. His name's only mentioned one time in all the Bible, and it's in chapter 1 of his book. It says, Joel, the son of Pethuel, and that's all we know about him. We don't know the time frame in which he preached. Uh, the temple was still standing because he referred to it. Priests were still offering sacrifices because he referred to it. So it had to be either 8th century between Amos and Hosea before the temple was destroyed or after it was destroyed, they came back, they rebuilt it under ne uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And it was up again, so it had to be either then or then. And most likely it was probably on the front end in the 8th century. It doesn't really give us a clue. A lot of, a lot of prophets will say, during the reign of so-and-so, and we can pretty well pinpoint it, but he mentions no kings, foreign or domestic. And he doesn't mention anybody's name, except his dad. But one word keeps coming up. Over and over and over. Shuv. S-H-U-V. In Hebrew it means come back. Return. Shuv. And so all through Joel and all through all the prophets, God is extending his hand to his people and he's saying, come back to me. Repent. Now, in Joel's day, God's people were in desperate need of repentance. Here's what was going on. Everything on the outside looked great. They went to church. Church attendance was packed.
They went to church. They kept the holy days. They kept the feast days. They thought they were doing what God wanted. But as soon as church was over, they cheated their brother. They were mean to their fellow man. They were adulterers. They were vile. They acted like the other nations. They were pagan. But they went to church, and they looked good. And God told them, you need to repent. I'm not looking at you outwardly. I'm looking at you inwardly. And so over and over, the word repent, my people, repent, is the message of Joel. Now, whenever Joel wrote, he assumed that the people knew one thing. Because he didn't explain it, he just started talking about it. He, he assumed that they knew Deuteronomy 28 and Exodus 34. He assumed that. What is Deuteronomy 28 and Exodus 34? That's where Moses was standing there looking at the people before he, he left the scene and Joshua came on, looked at them, and he told the people, now listen up, if you follow God's word, there will be blessings in your life. If you disobey God's word, there will be curses in your life. That's all he said. Go two chapters. So Joel assumed you remembered that. Because he told God's people, you remember what Moses said? It's about to happen. You're disobedient. You need to come back. If you don't, curses will follow. Now, Joel mentioned two key events God was going to orchestrate to get Israel to repent. Two things. The first one, letter A on your outline, is an invasion of locusts. Did you see the cover of our title, the cover of your worship guide there? A plague of locusts? That's what he was going to send. God told his people, unless you repent and come back to me, I'm going to send into your land an invasion of locusts. Now, locusts are mentioned more than 30 times in the Bible. They're in Psalms, they're in Joel, they're in, in Lamentations, they're in Jeremiah, they're, they're in Revelation. God, God often used locusts to do His work to bring people back. He did it to Egypt. Now, there are some people that say that locusts, an invasion of locusts was a symbol of of an army marching in, that the, as the Assyrians would be marching in later on, they look like a horde of locusts coming in on the horizon, and they're, they're approaching, and the sky's getting dark with soldiers, not insects. Maybe. But historically, in this time frame, there was an invasion, literally, of, of locusts. Now, I was raised in Oklahoma, and you say locust to me, I'm thinking of the little flying insect in the tree, that kind of like a cicada, you know. But locust in the Bible is what we know as a grasshopper. So it's an invasion of grasshoppers. God was orchestrating it so when the people were infested, they would look up and repent. So 
Joel told them, chapter 1, he said, folks, it's going to be bad. It's going to be an invasion of locusts, and it's going to be bad. In fact, it's going to be such an invasion that generations later will still talk about it. And those locusts are going to come in and destroy everything you count on. Your drinking water, they're going to get in it. Your crops. And as soon as one horde of locusts come through and you think they've eaten everything, a second wave's coming and they're going to finish it off. They're going to eat your wheat. They're going to eat your barley. They're going to strip bark off the trees. The fields will be destroyed. The ground will mourn. They're going to eat your barley. They're going to eat your pomegranates, your dates, your palms, your apples, your oranges, your fruit, your lemons. Northern Israel, beautiful, beautiful fruit, lemons, oranges, gone. And God's going to orchestrate it. So you will lament and mourn and return and repent. I've got a question for you. Does God do that today? Does God cause natural disasters to happen so His people will stop and look up to Him and repent? Does He make life so uncomfortable sometimes? that we look up. Now, I know that we're a little hesitant to say that, that God caused this hurricane, or God caused a tornado, or God caused a flood. I know that makes us a little uneasy to say that. But he did that in Scripture so his people would turn back to him. Does he do that today? You know what I find interesting? One of the last great revivals in America, spiritually, you know when it was? Great Depression. Now, there was another burst of revivalism in the 50s when Billy Graham came on the scene. But by and large, the greater revival and probably the last great revival in our nation, Great Depression. 1929-1939. And as a part of the Great Depression, you may remember, some of you may, some of you may not, there was an invasion of grasshoppers. In 1931, ate up all the crops. Here's a picture. Picture on the left, you may not can see it too well, that is a storefront, Colorado Springs, Colorado, covered in locusts, covered in grasshoppers, upside the walls, in the, in the cracks. And on the right side is a picture of fields in Terry, Montana, 1936, after a locust invasion, grasshopper invasion. Exactly what Joel described. And during the Great Depression, Americans looked up. And they turned to God. And their church attendance beats ours now. Percentage-wise, more people attended church during the Great Depression than they do right now. 
And not only that, you remember it was economically, man, the Great Depression. They, they had no money. The stock market crashed. They had no money. They gave more to God financially in offerings then than we do now. That's, that blows my mind. Percentage-wise, people gave more than the Great Depression to God than God's people give now. Why wouldn't he send another invasion? Why, why wouldn't he send something that's going to get our attention, that makes us uncomfortable, that makes us turn back, shoove, turn back to him and look up and say, God, I need you. Why wouldn't he? I know that most of you know and I've shared this before, uh, uh, when I was 18 years old, God had called me to preach when I was 17. I ran from that call for two years until I was 19. And during that time, at the end of that time of my running from God, I, I got a disease, almost took my life. I was in intensive care for weeks. They didn't think I was going to live, called my family in. And Rocky Mountain, from Rocky Mountain spotted fever from a tick bite. And, and that experience, as I look back on it, was horrible, nightmare. Still have, I still have flashes from time to time. But I believe what happened was God lovingly got my attention. Not because he zapped me, I'll teach you to run for me. No, no, how I view that whole experience is that I was on a road going this way, and God knew that if I would go and follow him, that this life was much better than the way I was going. And he knew that. And he had to do something that put me on my back for a year and a half where I had nowhere else to look but up. And I'm so thankful he did that. Would I want to do it again tomorrow? No. But he brought something bad into my life to lead me to something better. And he may be doing that in your life. There may be things going on, and you're going, God, why in the world am I going through this? I don't understand. I love you. I'm trying to follow as best I can. I don't understand what's happening. Why is my family going through this? And all the time, God is bringing you a locust invasion. So you will stop and look up and come back. Shoot. But there was a second event he said I'm bringing. Letter B on your outline, the day of the Lord, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. God, through Joel, said two things I'm going to do to turn you around because you're still way too comfortable. You think everything's fine, it's not. So the first one is there's going to be a locust invasion that's going to make you stop and turn to me. But the second thing is what's called Yom Yahweh. Every Hebrew, even today in Israel, they know Yom Yahweh. It means day of the Lord. And they had the day of the Lord pictured like this. One of these days, God is going to return to earth, and he's going to all the enemies of Israel, he's going to defeat, he's going to destroy off the face of the planet, and God's going to take the nation of Israel and exalt them. And they couldn't wait for Yom Yahweh, day of the Lord. 
God's going to come back. He's going to provide justice. All these nations bothering us. They're going to be defeated, and we're going to be exalted. And that's what they thought of. So here's what Joel said. Guess what, everybody? Put your lips to the trumpet and blow it. It is time for Yahweh. And they went, yes. And he went, no. Because you've got the wrong image. Yom Yaleh, the day of the Lord, is when God returns to visit His people, not the nations. And He will bring your knee to the ground so you'll look up and turn to Him. People, He said, it's not going to be a day of pleasure. So sound the alarm. It's going to be a day of darkness and gloom. Dark clouds and blackness over the land is what Joel said. And Israel will be judged. And there will be earthquakes. And the moon will turn to blood. And the sun will be darkened. And there will be anguish. Yom Yahweh is coming. That's not what you think. He's coming so His people will repent. So, what does repentance look like? Great question. Joel gives us a picture. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, I read it as our text. What does repentance look like? Let her see. The first thing I noticed as I read our text, and every week I read, I read the whole book and get an overview of the book and focus in on one passage and Read it carefully, dissect it, word study it, all of that. And one of the first things I noticed about verses 12 to 17, it's filled with imperatives. Now, why is that important? Well, if you're an English major, you know that an imperative is a command. So I feel like it is my job as your pastor every week to read the passage and see what the imperatives are. Because that's God's command to me and command to you. And so my job, I believe, as your pastor, one of them is, I stand and I tell you each Sunday, what, what is God commanding you to do? So I look for the imperatives. That's the commands. And it's full. It, it's full of imperatives. And one of the main words is shuv. Come back, return. Mention verse 12, mention verse 13. And he said, whenever you come back, come back with your heart, not with your garments. Because if Joel had said, okay, everybody, church is full. We're going to proclaim a, a, a day of mourning. Okay, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, we like that. Okay, so we'll tear our garments. That is a symbol of mourning. And God said, no, 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 no. I, I don't want your garments torn. I want your heart torn your heart broken so rend your hearts and not your garments and then he said whenever you come back I want you to do three things up fasting mourning and weeping I want you to fast mourn and weep now if you think about it those are three facets of how to repent but if you think about it those are three things you can't fake. You can't fake fasting. 
You can't fake weeping. You can try. It comes off disingenuous. But you can't really fake true weeping. And you can't fake mourning. Because they had gotten good at faking. Showing up, church, everything's great. And their hearts were not near the Lord. And you know what? We're pretty good at faking too. I think Baptists are the best fakers. I think we're good at it. Because we come to church and we think, everything's fine. I can sleep. I can do what I want. I'm, I'm there. But your heart's not. So he said, come to me and fast and weep and mourn. Do those things you can't fake. And then he described God's characteristics in verse 13. If you do that, here's the kind of God you'll come back to, he said. God is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. The only time imperatives are not used in our text this morning is when it's describing God. That's the kind of God you'll find. This morning, if you stop and look up and repent and turn to Him, the kind of God you will find is gracious and merciful and loving and slow to anger. That's the kind of God you'll find. And that's the kind of God that G. Gordon Liddy found when he came to Jesus you remember G. Gordon Liddy? Here's his picture. He was involved in the Watergate with Nixon. Remember that? G. Gordon Liddy was a colorful character. He, um, he was an FBI agent. He was uh, an aide to Richard Nixon in the White House. He, he was a pilot. He was an attorney. Uh, he oozed personality. He called himself a ladies' man. He was arrogant, he was cocky, he was brash, he was a, a student of the German philosopher Nitschke. He loved to quote Nitschke. He appeared on Miami Vice, the TV show. He was out there. And he was the mastermind behind the Watergate break-in. He was convicted of fraud. He was uh, convicted of wiretapping in his role in Watergate, sentenced to 21 years in prison, released after four years. And after four years, the media gathered around on the day that he was released, and they wanted to hear his first words after four years, and he spoke nothing but German. Nitsch, quoting Nitschke, and reporters were scratching their heads. He just wanted to have the upper hand again. He went on the David Letterman show as soon as he was released, and they were talking about different things, and David Letterman asked him, Did you ever think you were going to die? And, oh, by the way, what do you think it's like to die? And Liddy responded, we're just food for worms, David. And they laughed, and he said, is that all? And Liddy said, that's all. And later on, Gordon Liddy said, my impromptu answer to David Letterman about what happens when you die began to haunt me. Because I don't know what happens when you die. His former FBI colleagues uh, began to have a Bible study. They, Charles Colson, many of them came to know Jesus and got saved. 
And they invited him to Bible study. And he said, I don't want to go to your Bible study. I'm agnostic. I don't believe what you believe. And they said, well, just come study it for history, history alone. That's fine. I'll do that. I'll study it as history, but don't try to convert me. We're not going to try to convert you. Just come study. So he did. And Gordon Liddy said in his autobiography, as I went to the Bible study, I began to notice something. As I read the Bible and studied it with my colleagues, I began to notice that there is definitely a difference between the finite, us, and there is an infinite. There's definitely a God. So how does the infinite relate to the finite? So I began to study that. And I began to ask myself the question, what if I were the infinite, what would I do to relate to the finite? He said, well, I would, number one, become one of them. And number two, I would communicate with them somehow. He said, and it dawned on me. There was like, he called it in his book, quote, a rush of reason that came upon him. And he said, that's, that's it. Jesus is the finite coming to us, and the Bible is him communicating with us. And G. Gordon Liddy gave his life to Jesus. And he said, things changed. He talks about it in his autobiography, and the name of the book of his autobiography is simply Will, W-I-L-L. That's not his name. But he says that is the number one part of your life. Your will. Are you going to submit it to the infinite? Or are you going to use it yourself? And that's the question. And he said, so I prayed, God, would you bend my will? For 57 years, I did what Gordon wanted to do. I want to do what you want me to do. Bend my will to you. And in his book, he described repentance as bending your will to God. G. Gordon Liddy served faithfully as a believer until he died last year. So Joel began to use one imperative after another to call God's people to repentance, to bend your will. And you'll see them one rapid fire right after another. Gather, blow, consecrate, gather, consecrate, assemble, gather, let the bridegroom leave and, and, and let, the, let the, the bride leave, the chamber. And what he was saying was, call an assembly. Make this a priority. Get things organized, people. Call the people together, all ages, babies, nursing infants. Stop what you're doing. If you're planning a wedding, stop. Brides, put the wedding on hold. Grooms, put the wedding on hold. Gather as your people. we got to have a service to repent. Joel ends the book. Can you imagine us doing that? Can you imagine me going to our executive pastor over here? Brother Dennis, here's what we're going to do. Call an assembly. Call all the First Baptist Church together. Every member of our church needs to be here. No laying out that Sunday. Everybody here. We're going to have a special service. Send out the word. Call us together. All ages, get the babies out of the nursery and the kids, the youth. Get them all here. 
Make this top priority. If it's a wedding, put it on hold. Friendship house, we're shutting down for a week. Sunday school, no Sunday school for a week. No women's activities, men activities. We're not going on mission trips. Nothing for a week. We're gathering to repent. Can you imagine if we did that? I'd probably get fired. God's showing us what repentance looks like. It's costly. It costs you something. It's urgent. It's disruptive. If you're planning something, stop. It crashes into the status quo. It takes priority over everything else where your will is bent to His will. And God will allow anything bring you to that point because he loves you so much it was the morning of September the 11th 2001 Janelle Guzman clocked into her office job on the 64th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City clocked in at 8.05 average Tuesday she thought 41 minutes later, the building shook. She was raised in a part of the world where earthquakes were common. She said it felt like an earthquake, and she thought it was. PA announcer came on in the office and said, everybody stay calm, stay put, everything's fine. A few minutes later, the building shook a second time. And she said, my heart dropped because I knew something was wrong. The PA again, everybody stay calm, stay where you are, we'll have help, everything's fine. But she said the co-workers and I went to the elevator to leave, and it didn't work. So we started walking down the stairs. She said my co-worker Rosa and I held hands, we counted the stairs on the way down. We were on floor 64. So when we passed one, we'd count 55, 54, 53, and then 33, 32, 31. They got to floor 13 when all of a sudden there was a loud explosion. She said, I was knocked backward. Everything went dark. I lost Rosa, and I was all alone. Janelle was trapped in the rubble. Her leg was crushed. Her face was burned, her head was wedged between two concrete pillars. And she said, everything then stopped, and I thought, okay, this is where I die. I'm 30 years old, I have a 12-year-old girl, she said I was raised Catholic, but to be honest, God really was not a part of my life. I said he was, but he wasn't. She said, I was the party girl in the office. I was the one going to parties and staying out late and drinking and going to clubs. And that's my, what was my reputation. And she said, I didn't want to die like this. So she said, I began to pray. And I said, God, would you... Would you lead somebody to find my body so they can bury it? That's 
my only request. And hours passed. And she prayed again. Lord, would you help me make it to the hospital before I die so I can see my daughter one more time? Hours passed. And she prayed again. God, somehow, help me live. Give me a second chance. I promise I'll change my life and I'll change my ways. No more party, girl. I'm bending my will to yours. 27 hours went by. A dog equipped with special equipment to sense a body was led to her. Rescuers heard her call out and Janelle Guzman was the very last person pulled from the rubble alive. She was the final survivor 27 hours later of 9-11. Here's her picture. That's her on the left in the hospital. It's her on the right today. They saved her leg, by the way, four surgeries, but they saved it. They didn't think they would. And Janelle kept her promise. She turned her life over to God. She became a Christian. She submitted her life to Christ. No more party life. She began working in a Christian ministry to help others. And she's still there today. In fact, she was in Mesquite not too long ago when they dedicated a portion of the remains of 9-11 over in the city of Mesquite. And Janelle said, God used that experience to bring her back to him. God loved his people so much. And Joel, he sent them something bad. And he loved Janelle so much that he sent her something bad to turn her back to him. And he loved me so much to send me something bad to turn me back to him. And he may be doing that in your life. Because the one thing, the one thing that shows you're his, repentance. Father, I want to thank you today for the passage and for Joel and the message that he preached. And I pray it's a message that we heed today. God, I'm sure there are people watching online today and people actually physically here in our worship service today that, God, you are actively doing things in their life to try to get them to turn around. You want them to repent. You want them to bend their will to your will. And you want them to return to you. So God, may today be the day we say yes. Lord, some of those here today and online, they, they need to be saved. They, they need to trust Jesus as Savior. And so, Lord, they need salvation. They need, they need the cross today. And I pray that they will, they will pray a prayer of salvation to receive you. God, there are others that are your children, like I was, but they need to turn around. May today be that day. In Jesus' name I pray.